0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming to this, the latest instalment in the European Institute's Perspectives on Europe lecture series. Um, I'm Damien Chalmers, I'm Professor of EU Law and Head of the European Institute. I think my, my job is just to be a little more than compare for the main act, which is Dr Wilfried Martin's. Uh, talking about building the centre of rights in Europe, impressions from a lifetime's experience. Now, there is absolutely no one who is better placed to talk about this, and I will be very brief just to point to sort of three things about Dr Martens, of which I'm sure you already know. Firstly, and perhaps most importantly, after as a lawyer, it's always a great pleasure to welcome someone who had a distinguished academic career in the law. Dr Martens holds a doctorate in law. Secondly, the thing for which he's probably most famous is he's been nine times... Prime Minister of Belgium, I think uh, there are many uh, British politicians that can only ever aspire to being twice or three times. So uh, we're a small current country by comparison. But thirdly, and I think the reason for tonight's talk, is that he founded the European People's Party, which is really one of the great achievements of European politics. It is the greatest, in terms of size and influence, transnational <coughs> political grouping, party if you prefer, in the, in the world. And my colleague, Professor Simon Hicks, points to its increasing cohesion and capacities to behave in the way that we associate with domestic political parties. Now, to talk a little bit more about it, as, as a curtain raiser, it's a great pleasure to welcome Lord Englewood. Lord Englewood is well-placed to act in this role. He was an MEP. Within that grouping, and worked for the last centre-right uh, party to whole government here in uh, the United Kingdom in John Major's g- uh, government. So I hope you will welcome Lord Inglewood to the stage, and I uh, hope you enjoy the evening.
1: Well, ladies and gentlemen, don't worry. It says up there the keynote speaker is Lord Inglewood. Don't be under illusions. Wilfred Martins is the keynote speaker I'm merely the warm-up guy. Now I suppose that in all trades and professions there are sort of phrases that uh, are associated with it. And one of them I think about politics is there's nothing as ex as an ex minister of 45 and as they say it takes one to know one. And so I was especially flattered when I was asked if I would make this little introduction this evening. But then I was also saddened, because I feel it shouldn't be me at all. It really should have been Christopher Kringsland, who is Christopher Prout, played a very significant part in the uh, relationship that was built up between the British Conservative Party and the EPP group in the European Parliament. And as many of you may know, Christopher sadly died not all that long ago in the early autumn. Now, my brief remarks, I'm not going to touch on the recent Conservative decision that they should leave the EPP group in the European Parliament. It's not my call, but I do think it's a mistake both for the country and the party. But I shall rely on the distinction uh, of Max Weber's, quoted in Wilfred Martin's book, of the dis- difference between the ethics of conviction and the ethics of responsibility. And I am a co- supporter of the Conservative Party. Now, Sidney Smith said... Never, he never read a book before reviewing it because it prejudiced a man so much. And I'm prejudiced, and I have read the book, and I want to draw four conclusions briefly as a precursor to the main speech. The first one is, and you don't often think about it in terms of politics, and that is, of course, is fashion. Fashion is not merely about the length of the hem above the knee on a girl's skirt. It goes much wider than that. And currently... The European Union and the European political project is unfashionable. But just as it once was fashionable, it is bound to be fashionable again, because the pendulum swings backwards and forwards. Secondly, and this is another interesting thing that is explored a bit in the book, Christian democracy, which is a centre-right political uh, phenomenon, and conservatism, which is also a centre-right political phenomenon, are not the same. They share many, many common values and common attitudes, but they do come from a different historical background. And one of the things I think that we in this country are um, ignorant about is the intellectual basis of Christian democracy. Because I believe that if we knew more, and I'm as guilty as anyone of this, if we understood more about the theoretical basis of this political um, force... We would then, I believe, as a nation, those of us on the centre-right, be much more comfortable about it. Thirdly, we're in the European Union, and I think all the main political parties intend we should remain in the European Union, contrary to what you sometimes hear. And therefore, if we're part of it, we better make it our business, those of us who are involved in governance and public administration, to understand what it is and how it works. And that's not something you merely get from textbooks. And finally, and this may well turn out from a UK perspective to be one of the most important things you can see in his book how the EPP has built up a pan-European network across the various states of the Union and you don't build up a pan-European network just to leave it alone that pan-European network is now and will become in the future more important and more significant and have a greater impact on the way the Union works Now, there are also in the book many things of more general interest. And I've just come back from Boston this morning, where, of course, the great Tip O'Neill was uh, the the senator. And as he said, all politics is local. Of course, there are other maxims about politics, I think, and perhaps Inglewood's maxim is that all politics are hard. And there are three three, three levels of of difficulty. Hard, very hard, and Belgium. (laughs) And we have a speaker this evening who has excelled at Belgium. And finally, before sitting down, you're some man of humanity, as is clear from the book. And as I read through it, the sentence that meant most to me as an ex-MEP was as follows. When I met my former colleagues from the European Parliament, see them at work, away from home, week after week, and always off again on some trip, I often ask if they find any time at all to be with their children. That's the kind of man you're going to hear from now. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Well, good night.
2: Chairman, my lords, ladies and gentlemen, friends. It is a great honor and privilege to present to you this evening my book Europe, My Struggle, I Overcome. I am grateful to you for joining me here in the Hong Kong Theater and for the interest you are showing in my personal career and political engagement. My hope is that we will have an enjoyable exchange of views and ideas about the future direction of Europe, something to which I have devoted the majority of my life and that has shaped my political beliefs. Thank you, Lord Inglewood, for your kind words and opening comments. The European Parliament's loss is the House of Lords game. We miss you in Brussels, but will continue to watch with great interest your work in the British Parliament. I would also like to thank the European Institute at the London School of Economics for inviting me here today. Without your help and support, it would not have been possible to hold this event in such a prestigious setting. Professor Chalmers, your Institute has an outstanding international reputation as a world leader in research, and it does much to encourage the learning and understanding of the European Union. The hard work and constant efforts of you and your colleagues is helping to create the next generation of young Europeans, giving them the academic skills necessary to help build the new Europe. Knowledge and learning are essential if we are to make our continent globally competitive and able to face the challenges ahead. And politicians should never forget that investing in knowledge and skills through better education and research require the will to act, not words of inaction. The London School of Economics is a shining example of how we can break down barriers in our quest for wisdom. The original idea to write this book came to me five years ago, and in 2006 the first edition was published in Dutch and French. This year I have produced an international version in English, that covers the period up to the end of 2008 and looks at the major developments in recent European political history, many of which I have been privileged to take part in. Publishing the revised text was made possible thanks to the initiative of the political foundation of the European People's Party the Centre for European Studies. This edition has been produced thanks to a dedicated team. For the part concerning my career as a Belgian politician, I am very grateful to two journalists, Hugo de Rider and Guy Dalos, and to two young academics, Steven Van Hecke and Peter Ronsen. For the European section, I must particularly thank my personal head of cabinet, Ingrid Kozens, along with the EPP spokesman, Kostas Sassmatzoglu, and also Ivan Delibessik. This team made sure my recollections were set in an historic framework and written so as to reach out the general public. And they coordinated with the printer and edition house and Springer's editors based in India, a task requiring long hours combined with attention to detail. My colleagues, friends and partners in the EPP party have stressed to me time and again that individuals who played an important part in politics have a moral responsibility to publish their experiences. The public has the right to know how crucial decisions reached in the past were actually made, particularly since the past produces the present and shapes the future. As politicians, we must remember that we are public servants, elected to office to serve our people and to be accountable for all our actions. We must never forget that we work for the people. Apart from fulfilling this democratic responsibility, I would also like this book to become a pedagogical tool, a document that that helps bring politics to life by using examples gained from personal experience to educate future generations. Too often, too often, young people are turned off from political involvement. But we need your idealism, energy and openness if we are to overcome the challenges facing us. Young people often think outside the box, bringing a much-needed fresh focus to problems. This book is written for the young people whose interest in politics is awakening, and also for those already involved in political life. It covers almost 50 years of European history, from 1960 to 2008, illuminated through my personal experiences. So much has changed during the five decades my book covers as the European dream has become a reality based on a shared vision of Europe's role in the world, a continent united in diversity. This new world brought many of us opportunities beyond the wildest dreams of our parents' generation, who faced the destruction and upheaval of a world war. It makes it much harder than ever before in European history for any, of, for any one country to become a rogue state. There has been lasting reconciliation between the bitterest of enemies and two generations of peace. But whilst taking this peace and prosperity for granted, we should not forget that it is born out of blood and toil, built by those with courage and purpose. For me, as a young child growing up, war was a ruinous reality, understood by everybody and feared by all. I am pleased that today, for all part of the world, this is no longer the case. Sword and Shell have been replaced by debate and dialogue, as we seek an ever-closer European Union to safeguard Europe's cultural diversity and its languages, nations, regions and minorities. Never again must war and tyranny rip apart our continent. Writing these chapters has been a fascinating journey through my life. Through documents, pictures, and sound bites, I continually faced my pronouncements and opinions from years ago. Even though they, ha- they may have evolved since, I have nevertheless taken care to rep- reproduce my words and deeds from those days, as truthfully as possible. By putting into words, step by step, my life's work, I witnessed how my entire career was dominated by my political engagement. Today, the life of a politician is a continuous race, conditioned by deadlines and objectives that are too often for the shorter term, in the hope that one's action will not go, go unnoticed and will retain significance for the common good. The career of all politicians also contains, at times, adversity and difficult passages. Those rekindly motivation. And can lead to new successes. Hence, the choice of the title of my book. In Latin, "Luctar et Emergo." I struggle. I overcome. "Luctar et Emergo" is the motto of the device of a province of the Netherlands, Zeeland. I was born at ten kilometers to the south of this province and I visited during my youth and later on I am very I the Netherlands and the Flemish speak the same, speak the same language Dutch so I am very near also to the Netherlands I have noticed how questions that often occupied me for many years resurface again today and go on dominating the news. This is not illogical. The consolidation of a welfare society, the completion of the Belgian federal model and further European integration are projects that never really finish. They have to be adapted by each generation. But one should never forget that the ground gained by one generation can too easily be lost by the next. Europe is adjusting to a new era of globalization, demographic change and migration. By 2050, The world's population will be over 9 billion, up from the 4 billion when Great Britain joined the EEC in 1973. And globalization has propelled a tsunami of change through our lives, with many borders no longer barriers. We will need to continue down the path of ever closer union as we share sovereignty and gain strength to tackle the cross-border challenges such as climate change, energy security, nuclear proliferation, global pandemics, demographic change and global poverty. Our nations face the same threats, ranging from the hot war against global warming to the fight against terrorism. These are issues where people recognize the need for international solutions, ones that require more Europe and not less. In 2010, the European Union's Committee des Sages will put forward ideas about where Europe is going over the next 20 or 30 years. If we wish to build a Europe based on solidarity, security, shared values and shared prosperity, we need to reflect on how we use the new instruments in the Treaty of Lisbon to achieve such a Europe that is more transparent, more open to people's needs, and more politically accountable. Too often, politicians ignore the long-term implications of policy-making preferring instead to look at short-term electoral cycles. This is wrong and means that political tactics prevail over real strength, even though we all know that most problems cannot be solved instantly. Leading center-right politicians laid the foundations for the Treaty of Rome, together creating a Europe based on subsidiarity. You have another term in English, devolution. As Italy's Prime Minister, Alcide de Gasperi stated in 1953, We must seek union only where it is necessary, or rather, where it is essential. By preserving the independence of all that forms the basis of the spiritual, cultural, and political life of each nation, we safeguard the natural basis of our life together the last 50 years have been our success story a story which started with integration of western europe and ended with the final reunification of our continent the fact that i became a politician and devoted my life to public service can be attributed to the philosophers and politicians who after the war laid the foundations for the European society of my youth. My own political awakening was the result of their influence. Philosophers like Jacques Maritain Emmanuel Mounier and Paul Ricoeur gave the West a new intellectual climate. They established the foundations of Europe as we now know it. This new intellectual climate brought forth politicians of exceptional stature, individuals marked by a war that had transformed Western Europe into a heap of rubble. They included Konrad Adenauer, Robert Schumann, Alcide de Gasperi, and Jean Monnet. These philosophers and politicians remained a constant source of inspiration for me during my entire life in politics. The philosophy of Jacques Maritain, for instance, centers on the human person. Humans should, first and foremost, become more human. The process of humanization unfolds for Maritain according to the Christian vision, as opposed to the atheistic humanism of socialism, communism, and fascism. Emmanuel Mounier believed there would be a renaissance, a rebirth of person and community. He strove not for the emergence of a new type of person, unlike fascism and communism, but for a restoration of the absolute value of the human person. Like Maritain's, his thinking is Christian, but he leaves room for believers of other faiths as well as for unbelievers. Meunier was an inspiration for and friend of Paul Ricoeur, who in turn strongly influenced my political engagement. This primarily French friend of personalism had his German counterpart, In the work of Max Schaler and Romano Guardini. Christian democratic parties, which after the Second World War replaced, replaced the confessional, Catholic and Protestant parties, were strongly influenced by the, were strongly influenced by the churches. But Christian Democracy took their inspiration from this philosophy of personalism. Various elements of Maritain Zamounier's philosophy constitute an integral part of Christian democracy. After 30 years, and 30 years ago, When I helped to found the European People's Party, we were engaged to build Europe as an ever closer union with respect for the diversity of every member state. We were convinced that without Economic Union, Europe would have to relinquish a great deal of its decision-making to third powers and that without a common sovereignty, Europe would not be politically independent. This unification process was not easy. During the early 80s, we lived through a period of eurosclerosis. Then, in 1985, there came a new commission president, Jacques Delors, and he put the integration process back on track and became the driving force for two major reforms. And I am also happy that one of the actors is present here. We created the single market and we created the economic and monetary union with a single currency, the euro, some countries with an opting out, but the future will learn what the final decision will be of these countries. I look back with nostalgia at this period, who transmitted a powerful European message and were ready to defend this to the outside world the leaders at that period, when necessary, even they went against their own political parties and public opinion. These were European statesmen who focused on the future needs of Europe. Europe needs such leaders, leaders that put European achievements first, instead of using the Union as a scapegoat for unpopular national measures which perpetuates a continued crisis of confidence. The European model of closer cooperation, as nation-states share sovereignty, is the way forward in an ever more globalized world. And as the philosopher Seneca warned 2,000 years ago, if one does not know to which port one is sailing, no wind is favorable. Today's leaders will quickly become yesterday's men if they fail to act without vision. Our aim should be to create a political Europe, that is more answerable to the voters and offers clearer choices. Politisation will bring Europe closer to the citizens, demystifying institutional structures through greater transparency and accountability. Political decisions should be made by elected politicians are subject to the scrutiny of the voters and the verdict of the ballot box, not by unelected and faceless bureaucrats. Ladies and gentlemen, in a few days' time we will celebrate the 20th anniversary of the tearing down of the Berlin Wall, as twenty seven nations prepare to celebrate our joint success, it is important for us to pause and reflect. Although all European nations strived for the freedom, peace and prosperity with the establishment of the EEC which the establishment of the EEC offered, only some of Europe's states could benefit while others had to live under totalitarian rule for 50 years. Back in 1946 Sir Winston Churchill warned that an iron curtain has descended across the continent. In the same Fulton speech Churchill noted the safety of the world requires a new unity in Europe from which no nation should be permanently outcast. The nations of Central and Eastern Europe try to overcome this unnatural division so as to reintegrate the continent to allow Europe to braid with both lungs and not just with its western one. Today it is important for us to pay tribute to the peoples of Central and Eastern Europe because without the revolutions of 1956, 1968 and 1980, there would never have been a peaceful revolution in 1989, and the war would still divide our continent. Putting people at the heart of Europe, that's what happened in the autumn of 1989. More precisely, people put themselves on the map. The citizens of the countries that were then still communist put themselves in the center of what was happening. It was one of those rare moments when history is literally made by the people in the streets, by people who cease to be afraid of police truncheons and army tanks. What they demanded was something that West Europeans had by then come to take for granted. Maybe a little too easily to take their own lives into their own hands. To be able to peacefully change their government and to do so in a framework of fundamental basic rights turning a famous dictum by Karl Marx Marx, on its feet. These people had a world to win and nothing to lose but their fear. And I am proud that it was our political family, which in the years after 1989, was at the forefront of the effort to bring Central Europe into NATO and the European Union. All this happened in the heart of Europe, a region often called Middle Europa, Central Europe. But politically, with all due respect for nostalgia and for looking back at the history of communism and its end in Europe, we should ask, what are the lessons of 1989 for the 21st century? Which conclusions should we draw from the resistance to communism and from the successful transformation that followed in Central Europe? Let me try an answer. We have to believe in the power of freedom, both in resisting dictatorship and building open and economically successful societies, even if other models seem to be more successful for a time. And we have to help our friends, the men and women in democratic movements around the globe, who look to us with hope and expectation. Seen from this angle, the experience of eighteen nine can teach all of us a lot about the present and the future. One has to learn from history, be it in my country, and in your country and in Europe. The danger is that if new generations fail to learn from history, they risk repeating the mistakes of the past. I would never have spent so much time and effort on this book if I did not hope that the young generation could learn from it and draw inspiration. After my resignation as Prime Minister after 12 years, in march one thousand nine hundred and ninety two i was still president of the european Pop- people's party i went to central europe i visited in two years more than ninety cities movements peoples i consec- consecrated my whole political life to this to create what is now today a very strong European political family the European People's Party on a renewed basis not only with Christian Democratic parties also with Conservative parties with People's Parties with former Liberal Parties in the EPP and we won the elections We are now the strongest political force in the European Parliament. For the first time in 1999, 2004-2009. This is also, I hope for you, uh, an inspiration. I don't tell you that everybody has to go in politics. But I think it is important in its personal life to believe and to have strong convictions. So I consecrated my life essentially my professional life to this political engagement to the public service during 50 years. But speaking about inspiration I would conclude to tell you the future it's in your hands. Please use it wisely. I thank you for your attention.
0: Dr. Martins, thank you very much for such a wide range and thoughtful speech. We have about half an hour for questions. If people ask questions, please raise their hand. Uh, do we have a roving mic? To the gentleman just here thank you very much for your wonderful exposition but is this, is this theory that the European Union was created during the Cold War yes. the European Union was created during the Cold War but now that the Cold War is over do you think that the European Union is a is, is is no longer relevant because it was created its raison d'etre was to be anti communist
2: against Moscow. I will answer on this question with two different approaches. I was as I ...said to you during 12 years... ...member of the European Council... ...at that period... ...during that period... ...we were 12... ...heads of state... ...and heads of government... ...all of them... ...had a memory of the war... ...practically all of them... ...and this inspired also... ...their engagement... We tried, we were the second generation after the founders of the European community. I mentioned Gasperi, Adenauer, um, Jean Monnet, and Robert Schuman. But also the second generation, with the memory of the war and what happened during that dramatic period, had the ambition to complete reconciliation peace and to create a new period of economic growth to create jobs and that's the reason why we realized these important reforms of the single market and the economic and monetary union we were living in Western Europe and until 1989 there was the Berlin Wall and other European countries were living under dictatorship. This was also a stimulus for us and public opinion could agree that we had to unite our forces, political economic, other forces to build a strong Western Union in the framework of the European Union and also in the framework of NATO My second uh, uh, approach is the following. The actual leaders of the European Union have not the same personal experience of the war. But I ask you, I ask them, what are the challenges for the actual leadership? They are responsible in a period with another very important but peaceful challenge that is globalization what is the future of the european peoples the european nations without integration without acting together on a sense of questions what i try to explain to you also in my speech this is the challenge of the new generation of European leaders. And I have this question. If we not, do not stay together, if we not work together, European peoples and European nations and countries, if we, not, if we are not able to create this alternative in a world of globalization with United States, China, India, Brazil and others, what is the future of our peoples and of our nations? My answer is, there is no alternative in this period of history with these challenges there is no alternative for the European Union. Perhaps some countries have the illusion that they are big and very important. <laughs> but on the world stage, they are middle. They are small countries. So we have to unite. We have to stay together. We have to work together. Not all, all problems. And that is the notion of subsidiarity. No, in the beginning of our party we said in the preamble we are in favor of the United States of Europe. That was in 1976. But with the experience of the single market, the treaty on the single market also power. On legislation for the European Parliament, what we confirmed in the Treaty of Maastricht in 1991, we became aware and we were convinced that the European Union has to be a union, I will again use a Latin expression, sui generis. We have not to create a European superstate. And, for instance, the EPP changed in 2001 the statutes of our party, telling that we are in favour to create a European Union on the basis of subsidiarity. So, Union subi generis. And you know that we had, since the Treaty of Maastricht, a European Union with three pillars the pillar of uh, the community decision-making, single market, I mentioned, and economic and uh, monetary union. We had the pillar of what we called then police and justice, and we had the pillar of common foreign and defense policy. The two, these two pillars, justice, police and justice, and common foreign and defense policy, were competences, of intergovernmental cooperation not of common decision making at the European level Deal with, this will change with the Treaty of Lisbon one of the major changes, reforms is the fact that we now will have a repartition of competences between the European level of the European Union and the competences of the member states but I repeat my conviction that the leaders of this European Union with 27 member states are also confronted with an enormous challenge. The challenge, how will Europe on the world stage in this period act. How can it act with one voice on the world stage? And this is the real the real objective for the European Union. I mentioned the Committee de uh, Committee of Wise Men and Women. They have to deliver a report next year, in in March or in uh, May twenty ten. And they have to tell us, also to the leaders of the heads of state and the heads of government, what the perspectives are and what the objectives are for the European Union in 20 or 30 years. Well, I hope that they will stress this and that they will make proposals how to use the budget of the European Union. As traditionally... ...or taking in account the new challenges. That's one of the examples. But it is union, not only, as you said, during a long period, you said, against communism. It is a European Union confronted with a world which radically changed and is a world of globalization one world and what can be the future of the younger generations in this world without staying together working together not on all subjects of objectives because the member states also maintain large responsibilities and one of the psychological problems we had is to convince public opinion that the union is not combating the nations, the member states, that there is no contradiction between the two, that the nations, the member states, are essential to create the European Union, and that they have to cooperate, and this is one of the fundamental misunderstandings in a lot of countries, and in a lot of countries in public opinion.
0: Thank you very much. Gentleman just here. Um, Given the general decline in politics and voting in terms of people voting, especially in Europe, where the turnouts for votes have been quite low, um, what do you think of, in times of crisis, people when they actually do vote now, especially on the right, going from the right to extremist parties, like, for example, in Britain, the BNP, of one euro seats now. Could we just take a couple more questions before that? No, there's, more. There's, um, yes, that gentleman there, and then we'll take one over yeah. there. Um, sure. Firstly, if you don't mind
1: me asking, who would you be backing for the um, European uh, presidency and the position of European f- f- Foreign Minister? And um, secondly. Uh, You kept on emphasising um, that we need a greater degree of union uh, in Europe uh, to combat uh, global poverty and climate change. How do you uh, think this union can be achieved and um, to to what extent do you think you can get this union uh, in place and how do you think uh, awkward members like the UK may be um, stifling... This, uh, uh, this aim of yours.
0: Okay, we'll just take one more question from over there. Uh, the gentleman right at the back. Hi. Thanks a, you, thanks a lot for your presentation. Uh, I was wondering, uh, given the importance, uh, and it's related to the previous question really, given the importance that you attach to the European integration project, uh, what are, you, what are the view, your views on uh, the impact of the inclusion of the British Conservatives in your party on the European Integration Project? Thanks. Okay, I think so three and a half mm. questions there. First one on the decline of voting and the corollary growth of extre- extremism. The second, who should be the European President and the High Representative? And the last two were sort of linked. How to, how to realise the, this greater uh, this increased union and what to do about awkward parties perhaps the British Conservatives?
2: Yeah. on the first question we have a decline in the participation in the European elections and secondly not only in the United Kingdom but also in a lot of other Member states there is a growing sceptical public opinion. Twenty years ago, thirty years ago, I remember very well... ...there was unanimity... ...in the Parliament... ...in my country, in a lot of countries. It was an enterprise of the elite. People was not... ...invited... ...to take part... ...in referenda... It was not a hot uh, subject of discussion in the political debate. So we are also in our countries confronted with Eurosceptical public opinion, especially the extremes are strongly not only Eurosceptical, but, but reject the European Union, extreme right, in the Flemish part of Belgium rejected the European Union. The same in some countries with the extreme left. And we are there is a decline you call it decline in the participation in the European elections. So we have a terrible problem with the European Parliament and the Members of the European Parliament to translate, to, to, to convince public opinion are a lot of technical proposals. Some are proposing to create an election um, of 10 or 20% of the members of the European Parliament in pan-European elections. That is not so simple. These candidates for this election in the whole Union or in important <laughs> sectors of the Union are confronted with the problem of languages. In what language will they speak to the public opinion to the voters, for instance? That this proposal uh, was discussed in the European Parliament. Essentially, I think that as I said, more accountable, accountable to public opinion and I think that in a lot of member states, the election of the members of the European Parliament can be changed in a positive way. I can tell you, in my country, we had a direct, a possible direct contact with the voters. We also have the obligation in Belgium, so 90% are participating in the election of the European Parliament. That's one of the means you could use but it is in contradiction with long traditions in several member states. So in the European elections in Belgium, 90% are participating in the vote because it is an obligation. But it is not, <laughs> not the, the good way, I think, to impose it. It will never be accepted. But we are speaking a very technocratic language, unprehensible, incomprehensible The European Commission is giving press conferences every every Wednesday. I never see in our television, journals, or in the press, the effect of this. So, there's a lack of real communication. So, to change this, I have no solution, no immediate solution. I believe that we can organise these elections um, in a different way in every Member State. Until now it is the competence of the national parliaments and the national governments. How to combat extremism. So it is linked, I think, to a credible message of the European Union. I always admire the United States and also United Kingdom. You are capable to express a clear message politically. And so that's not the case for the European Union. The role of the European political parties is also a problem. We have now more means, but we also try to integrate the political parties which are member parties in the different member states in our action and to create a real common action. But you see I have no immediate solution for this. And uh, we cannot, I cannot improvise on this. We are Trying to integrate the action in the different member states of our member parties in the action of the EPP, but this will be a long way. One day when the European political parties would have the right and the duty to present a candidate for the executive branch of the European Union, for the European Commission, that would change. You see, the role in the United States of the political parties on the federal level is not very big, except one major decision to present a candidate. So we were in favor to do that, but it will take a long way before I think the heads of government will accept this. European Presidency and Foreign Minister. This is one of the important points, not the only ones of the new treaty of Lisbon, the first step is now that the treaty is ratified, so the Czech president has to sign this treaty. I wonder what the decision will be of the Constitutional Court in the Czech Republic. They have to take a decision today and perhaps uh, in, in, in more two weeks this week on Thursday and Friday the heads of state and the heads of government are coming together in the European Council I don't think that they will as was said that they will coronate uh, the president of the European Council I will not give the name of this um, article in the press last days because they were waiting I think until the signature of President Klaus of the Czech Republic. This function of President of the European Council and high representative for foreign and for common foreign and defense policy is politically linked to the composition of the European Commission. European Commission is the government in fact and has to have ...needs a vote of confidence... ...of the European Parliament... ...I think it is excluded... ...that this commission... ...once... ...the president of the European Commission... ...can present his commission... ...to the European Parliament... ...to obtain a vote of confidence... ...without solution of the two new... ...very important functions... President of the European Council and High Representative for Common Foreign and Defence Policy. We have a tradition in the European Parliament that we come to an agreement between the two major political groups, the EPP and the European Socialists. I can tell you without disagreement between our two groups. Uh, on these two new functions the European Commission will never have a vote of confidence in the European Parliament so it is linked to each other and the heads of state and the heads of government will discuss it I think after the signature these two new functions and the composition of the European Commission are extremely important on a new basis the Treaty of Lisbon. We want a real political European Commission with a high profile and I think also that real progress in a European Union with 27 member states, with half a billion people, that is is, two new functions are crucial this high representative will also have to create uh, an external service, diplomatic service with the cooperation of the member states and the diplomatic service of all the member states to tell you the importance I will not mention uh, names it is too early I think The heads of state and heads of government will wait, I think, until the real ratification. But then we will have to decide, not only on the composition of the European Commission, but also of these two new functions. And that is a real, very important decision. Uh, Do we want a president with a high profile? as in fact Sarkozy, President Sarkozy, was in the second half of 2008 in the crisis in Georgia, in the financial crisis, do we want, he was the president of a very important member state. He was very active. Do we want such a president or a president with a low profile? But also the high representative for foreign policy is extremely important. I gave an example here. We'll have to create this new external service. And the heads of government are asking him, I think, to do that before uh, the end of the Spanish president, before the end of June 2010. Now the conservatives... will read my book you will see that we tried since 1990 to come not only to a strong cooperation but also to accept the members the members of parliament European parliament of the conservative party as members of our political group in the European Parliament. I then had long discussions with Mr. Proud, who was the leader of the delegation of the MEPs, conservative MEPs in the European Parliament, and also with the president of your party of that period. We came easily to a conclusion I was since some weeks president of the party and then we realized it we accepted them, was strong opposition in our group but with the help of uh, EPP heads of government as Helmut Kohl we could convince our group and then we had a period of good uh, cooperation, very fruitful cooperation Uh, in our group in the European Parliament. From 1999 something changed. Um, The leader of the Conservatives that year asked to change the cooperation and we accepted to reform our group from an EPP group to an EPP-ED group, European Democrats and the British Conservatives ...and also the party of the Prime Minister of uh, the Czech Republic... ...became member of this section of European Democrats together with the EPP. I always invited the leaders, successive leaders of the Conservative Party... ...to the important meetings of what we call the EPP Summit... ...the summit of the highest level of the party with our heads of government and the party leaders, and they always accepted to come. The cooperation was more difficult, but we maintained it. And on institutional questions, uh, the British Conservatives, members of the Section ED, were free to vote on the basis of their conviction. When David Cameron became candidate leader of the Conservative Party, He announced that he would leave the EPP group after the elections of 2009. I always invited him to participate in the meetings of the EPP summit. He always excused himself very gently, but he never participated. His predecessors participated. They intervened. They had their conviction. But he never came, and so we had no contact with them. They created, with some other people, a group, a new group uh, in the European Parliament after the elections of June 2009. I will give two connotations for this group. It is a weak group, and it is a marginal group. And the influence of this group is not existing in the framework of the European Parliament. Most of them voted for José Manuel Barroso, as new, for a second mandate as president of the European Commission. But the real impact of this group is not is is very weak the impact of this group is extremely weak it's very controversial there are a lot of a lot of statements which are extremely controversial also of the leader of this group and for me it is clear that in this group they cannot have the influence they had as members of the EPP group and the EPP ED group I have to confess you and to tell you, not to confess, to tell you that even when we had divergence on the content, the conservative members of our group were always very active and had very important functions and influence in the European Parliament through the Canal. Uh, uh, of the uh, EPPED group in this parliament. So I don't know what will happen. I think that Mr. Cameron has a real chance to become the next Prime Minister of uh, uh, your country. He always will have also the question to know in what kind of network will he function because we have 13 prime ministers on the 27 uh, in the EPP and we are working with them together and it is very important to have this kind of personal, bilateral but also contacts in this important group of the leaders of governments in the European Union so the whole what is the perspective for the Mr. Cameron when he becomes the new Prime Minister of your country power softens some attitudes that will certainly also be the case in any but it is important that the last reform of the institutions will be a fact that there is no longer discussion about it then we can and the leaders of the member states can work on the substance on the content on the substance and no longer on institutional reforms but you have to accept this new organisation of the european union as said with twenty seven uh, member states and there is a lot to do on the substance huh? i mentioned all economic recovery after the crisis of last year and this year, climate change, energy security, fight against terrorism, fight against organized crime, and so on and so on. As I said, no, not all, not all political problems have to be decided on European level, but what I see the Gasperi in 53, the essential things our common destiny has to be decided there and uh, so I hope really hope that with this new reform of the Treaty of Lisbon we can work on the substance essentially we will lose time now I hope that the new commission and the new functions will be active before the end of this year it is not sure It depends also on the ratification. It depends on the hearings in the European Parliament about the new 27 uh, members of the Commission. But we need these uh, instruments. We need them urgently to take decisions to see what is happening in the United States, in China, in other countries. They are active, they are working on this recovery after the crisis. Europe cannot be there during weeks and months passing without leadership. And that is also um, a very important point and we will try in the coming days when we have these meetings in the party and I hope that the European Council also will act uh, immediately and try to take a decision on these new instruments that the Treaty of Lisbon created.
0: Thank you very much. I hope um, Dr. Monson has given you many reasons to read his book. There is happily a pile over there, and uh, very generously, you don't have to pay for them. And he is also happy to sign them, and I think it's, well, it's a wonderful read. Before we finish, I just did a couple of, well, one, one, one point, it's a, which is a puff for tomorrow. We have another event in our Perspectives on Europe series, and also an important element of the European integration process, what is happening in South East Europe, and the EU's transformative processes there. Heather Grabby, a well-known specialist and leading authority on European integration, is speaking here tomorrow. But Dr Martin, I I said earlier that it was wide-ranging and thoughtful. It was certainly wide-ranging temporally, but I also went from the Second World War right the way through to climate change and the indefinite future. But I also meant it. In another sense, it ranged from sort of Paul Ricoeur right through to the fine detail and nuance of the European Council and the inner workings of the European People's Party. And I certainly am very grateful for that. And I also thought it was a very personal talk, which I, I certainly appreciated a lot. And I hope everyone else here will join me in showing their appreciation for a really uh, wonderful talk and question and answers. <laughs>